Comprehensive immigration reform has been at a standstill for years, and presumptive Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump has talked about deporting 11 million undocumented immigrants currently in the U.S. I'm Steve Goldstein. On today's Here and Now, we'll talk about how federal inaction on immigration reform has affected law enforcement in cities and communities around the U.S. Our guest will be criminologist Scott Decker, co-author of the new book, Policing Immigrants, Local Law Enforcement on the Front Lines. Also, the U.S. House was recently the site of a protest related to gun control by a number of Democratic lawmakers. I'll check in with Representative Ruben Gallego to get his thoughts on gun control, legalizing marijuana, and the presidential race. Plus, coyotes have been roaming the valley for many years, and now they can be found in 49 states. We'll learn more from Dan Flores about the history of coyotes and why they may or may not like your cat or small dog. Here and Now is next on KJZZ. The news is first. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. Good morning. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Coming up this hour, I'll check in with Congressman Ruben Gallego, who's been heavily involved in Democratic efforts to enact new gun-related legislation. We'll also talk about the Voting Rights Act and marijuana. Also, coyotes have roamed the West for centuries, and now they're in 49 states. I'll ask author Dan Flores about how they've survived and whether we're seeing them more often in urban areas. And Arizona Theater Company is in dire financial straits with a major deadline looming. I'll talk with longtime artistic director David Ira Goldstein about the problem and what could be next. We start today's program by talking about the weather. Some parts of the valley, including my neighborhood, got some thunder and lightning, even a dose of rain on Monday night. Monsoon season seems to have officially started in Arizona. And with me for a few minutes to talk about that is Ken Waters of the National Weather Service's Phoenix office. He is the Warning Coordination Meteorologist. Ken, good morning. Good morning, Steve. So how powerful has the beginning of the monsoon been? I was actually a little bit surprised on Monday that not that there was some dust, but that we actually got some some lightning, some wind, and some rain. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, first off, one thing to say about the monsoon is every year is different. So it's it just there there is no normal is what I say. Mm-hmm. So, um, but officially, our, our monsoon season does start in June fifteenth mm-hmm. and runs out to September thirtieth. Now, this year, uh, using some of the scientific measures, particularly the dew points that we track, uh, it has gotten off to an early start. So um, just looking at the weather uh, this morning, we've got dew points in the 60s over much of uh, the southern half of Arizona and even on into California. So it is off to a big start, all right. Yeah, when you mentioned southern Arizona, it seemed as though uh, southern Arizona got hit pretty hard, at least parts of it yesterday, with rain. And I I guess that's the point I'm going to keep emphasizing, which is, The haboob comes in, we get the huge wall of dust, we also get lightning and thunder, but it does seem promising to have gotten rain this early. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Just we're talking about Phoenix. Normally, we start to see that surge typically about the first week of July, maybe about July 4th, July 5th on average. So we've definitely got a big big jump on things. And um, the indication is the next couple days, it's going to continue. A lot of moisture out there. And that's the big variable that, that really feeds the monsoon. So based on the forecasting you and the National Weather Service have done so far, how strong a monsoon do you expect this season? I know it's hard to predict, but are you expecting a pretty at least average to perhaps above average rainfall? Yeah, the projections so far, uh, it's really hard to track them down, uh, you know, to, to nail down a, a precise forecast. But we're looking for pretty much a normal uh normal monsoon season as far as the precipitation goes um and then the temperature is a little bit above normal most most likely but 
as I say, you know, it's it's really a bit of a of of, of a roll of the dice sometimes with the monsoon. Um, there's so much variability in it. Ken, I don't have a bone to pick with you specifically, of course, but since you're a longtime meteorologist, I have to ask you about this. So uh, our newscaster, Bruce, just did uh, the forecast talking about how maybe a 10 to 20 percent chance of rain in the forecast. Now, is that is that specifically, the is that just to keep the idea of a chance in there? Because as you said, it's so unpredictable, this idea 10 to 20 percent could end up, yes, rain, or it could end up just being blowing dust. How difficult is it to assess those percentages, especially during the monsoon? Um, it, it, as you get closer to the event, it becomes uh, more easier. Uh, but if you're looking at something like 10 to 12 hours out in advance, it really is tough um, because the, there's so much geographic variability. I mean, we see it every every time we have we have some uh, monsoon thunderstorms in the area. One area will get hit, and then just just a few miles away, they'll they'll get nothing. So that kind of is where where a lot of that percentage comes in. You know, if you talk about 20% chance of rain, well, that means more, more likely one area is going gonna, is, is gonna to get hit with maybe a lot of rain, and then just a little ways away, they might not get anything. So a lot of variability to it. You've been researching a dust warning system, and I-10 can be especially treacherous. Now that we are in the heart of the monsoon season, how important is it going to be, Ken, to keep strengthening these warning systems? Uh, well, dust is always a, a big concern of, of ours, uh, especially, uh, you know, dealing with highway safety. And and so we're going to continue to monitor these things. Um, and I should point out that even though the monsoon has started, uh, there certainly are going to be a, a number of areas where where they just haven't had that moisture yet, that, you know, at least falling down, you know, the rainfall. So the dust continues to be a threat, but it, it probably, I would say the the, the, the the height of the threat would be like in June and maybe early July. But as we get more and more showers coming in, it's probably going to be a little lessened. But there's always that threat for dust, and it's something we have to watch out for. Ken, finally and briefly, as a longtime forecaster and meteorologist, is there anything you find especially fascinating about the monsoon? I mean, some people love to watch the lightning. Some people are interested in the dust. For you as someone who knows a lot more than the average person, what fascinates you about it? Uh, well, a lot. Um, you, I, I, I guess the, the, the uncertainty factor that it's, it's a bit of a challenge every day knowing, well, is, are, are we going to get hit hard? And if so, where? So that, that's where a lot of the science comes into it and, and challenges us meteorologists to, to come out with, uh, with the best forecast we can. Um, but personally speaking, I, I, I honestly, I love the monsoon. It's exciting to me and it, it really gets me rolling. Ken Waters is Warning Coordination Meteorologist for the National Weather Service's Phoenix office. Ken, thanks. Thank you. Have a great day. This is KJZZ's Here and Now in Phoenix. I'm Steve Goldstein. During President Obama's State of the Union address earlier this year, he put Vice President Joe Biden in charge of what's being called a Cancer Moonshot Initiative. It's intended to put maximum focus, effort, and funding toward finding a cure for cancer. The daunting task is meant to be a near-universal effort for researchers and businesses across the country. And today in Washington, D.C., the vice president is hosting a Cancer Moonshot Summit. In connection with that, the University of Arizona's Cancer Center is hosting a related event. gets underway in just a few minutes and will run until 4 o'clock this afternoon. And with me for a few minutes to talk about that is Dr. Peter Lance, deputy director of the U of A's Cancer Center in Phoenix. Dr. Lance, good morning. 
Uh, Good morning. So before we talk specifically about what's going on today, I want to get your thoughts about the whole moonshot concept. Um, Is this the kind of ambition that's needed to potentially cure cancer? The, the short answer to that is yes, and of course, being a scientist and a physician, I, you know, I have a qualification or two to add to that. Uh, the, the cancer is really multiple diseases, hundreds of different diseases, and we have been making a, extraordinary progress, uh, but that it is clear that we have not made the progress that we would like to uh, have made. And so I think the, the moonshot uh, approach that the president mentioned in his State of the Union and is now very much being being implemented is really a terrific uh, initiative. If one could use just a very brief way to describe it, it might well be uh, to uh, include greater efficiency in how we do cancer research and make sure that we're really casting the net as wide as possible to get the very best ideas from everybody, from patients, members of the public, through to Nobel laureates and scientists. And so uh, combining that sort of approach with an accelerated uh, program, I think, is very important. When the vice president, who has been charged by the president with overseeing this initiative, when the vice president uh, spoke at the largest meeting of cancer researchers in New Orleans in uh, April of this year, he immediately struck a very, very happy chord to this audience that he really gets the issues because he said that uh, he rather likened uh, some of our research and the processes by which we do our research to uh, asking Derek Jeter uh, before he retired to uh, take time out from playing from the Yankees to raise money to uh, build a larger and better Yankee stadium. So I think the president really gets the message that the cancer community, uh, the cancer research community is ready for an accelerated approach that brings everybody together uh, and really makes sure that we're much more efficient in how we pursue our many approaches to uh, alleviating the burden and uh, deaths from cancer. You mentioned that there has been progress made. When it comes to something like cancer, though, which affects so many people, and there are so many different varieties of cancer, um, is there, when we think about the moonshot concept, does that in any way imply that the work that's being done isn't hasn't been done fast enough? Um, because it does seem like when it comes to deadline pressure, um, I would presume there are pros and cons to that because you want to have um, the idea of working faster and working smarter, but you also want to make sure that the work is done in the proper fashion because even though everyone wants the cure to happen yesterday, you still have to make sure the, the work is done in the proper sense, right? Uh, absolutely. You know, I think what, what the approach is going to do is to take the, the best examples of where we have uh, been uh, very successful. For instance, uh, now most childhood leukemias uh, are curable, as is um, our most uh, Hodgkin's lymphomas. And when I was at medical school a long time ago, those were usually fatal diseases. Uh, we've known now for several decades that the uh, much the largest uh, cause of cancer death Uh, in the developed world and in other parts of the world, in fact, is lung cancer. And we've known for 40 or 50 years uh, what to do about lung cancer, and that is to uh, stop people from smoking tobacco. So I think that what what 
is planned is to take very good examples from that, uh, learn from how we've got the message, but maybe we haven't implemented the message yet, or take the successes such as the childhood leukemias and Hodgkin's lymphoma uh, and try to learn from those lessons of success, if you like. So a, a huge variety of, of experts will be attending today's summit at U of A. Obviously, there are many people in Washington, D.C. with the vice president as well. Can you give me an idea of, of what sorts of people are going to be there? I imagine all kinds. Uh, yeah, absolutely all kinds. Well, for one thing, the vice president is going to be talking to us by a video hookup uh, at the end of our deliberations this afternoon. He's going out around the world, the, the country, to, to the various places that are having these sessions. So we've, number one, anybody is more than welcome just to walk in, which will be in the Kiewit Auditorium in the Cancer Center on the U of A Health Sciences Campus uh, on Campbell in, in Tucson. So anybody is very welcome to come in. We've, we've really reached out to uh, thought leaders in the community, survivors, very, very important. I think that's another thing to emphasize, that the vice president, uh, having just uh, tragically lost his son to brain cancer, is absolutely uh, absolutely bound and determined that the, the cancer community itself should be involved as much as possible. So we'll have researchers, we'll have community leaders, we'll have patients. Uh, and so it's a really a very broad uh, swath of, we hope, of the community and the, that is going to be involved. And I was told that, in fact, uh, uh, over 90 people have already registered to be here. And, and so we're going to talk through what the vice president's initiative is. And we are then also going to uh, mention several of our own initiatives in response to uh, this uh, this blue ribbon uh, approach uh, to the moonshot uh, approach and I would also just like to emphasize mm -hmm. that the president the vice president does get the importance I take your very good up very good observation that we have to be meticulous in deciding how we're going to uh, spend research dollars to uh, alleviate death and uh, and suffering from cancer but also we can do a quicker job in getting the turnaround and so the uh, the applications for uh, and suggestions for what the Blue Ribbon panel that is going to uh, outline recommendations, though the, the deadline for getting those in is July 1, and we have uh, four or five uh, uh, suggestions coming here from the University of Arizona Cancer Center. There's going to be a short turnaround time for the, the Blue Ribbon panel to process those and make recommendations that will go, go on up to the National Cancer Institute director. And the bottom line is that the panel expects to be making uh, funding uh, announcements uh, by the middle of next summer. So that's an accelerated uh, timetable compared to the usual grant submission and review and award processes. Indeed it is. Dr. Peter Lance is Deputy Director of the U of A's Cancer Center in Phoenix. We've been talking about the Moonshot Summit that the U of A's Cancer Center in Tucson is hosting related to a D.C. event the Vice President is hosting. Dr. Lance, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for this opportunity. And still to come on here and now, we'll check in with Representative Ruben Gallego. Stay with us. KJZZ is supported by Local First Arizona, 
a coalition and directory of over 3,000 Arizona-owned independent businesses celebrating Independence Week now through July 4th. Tips for finding locals are at localfirstaz.com. This is Here and Now on KJZZ. We've got BBC News Hour coming up at 1. Taking a look at some temperatures around the state right now, 76 degrees in Flagstaff, it's 85 in Prescott, 93 in Casa Grande, 88 in Tucson, and 93 in Yuma, where they're reporting some light rain. Did you know you can turn your car, truck, or boat into something you really want? When you donate your vehicle, you'll make it possible for KJZZ's local reporters to cover everything that's important to you and your community. Donating your car, truck, or boat is easy. Just go to cars.kjzz.org. Right now in Phoenix, under partly sunny skies, we have 24% relative humidity, and it's 99 degrees at 1122. You are listening to KJZZ's Here and Now in Phoenix. I'm Steve Goldstein. Earlier this month, a number of House Democrats took to the floor for a sit-in related to gun control measures. One member who took part is Congressman Ruben Gallego, who represents Arizona's 7th District. And Representative Gallego joins me now to talk about gun legislation and a few other things. Congressman, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good morning. So how important do you think new gun-related legislation is, and what steps do you think are possible at this point? Well, I think, you know, we're hearing from uh, the American public that they're just sick of all this gun violence and no action. And we, as Democrats, are sick of the hypocrisy of our Republican colleagues calling for moments of uh, prayer and silence on the floor and then absolutely no action. Um, and I do believe there is some, some sane legislation that is, is supported by gun owners, is supported by Democrats, or supported by Republicans, such as if you're on the terrorist watch list, you should not be able to buy a weapon. Um, everyone should go through universal background check if you're going to buy a weapon. And that certain types of people um, should also not be allowed to have weapons. So if you're someone, for example, uh, that has a history of domestic violence, uh, somebody who is uh, mentally uh, ill, these are the things that we know publicly uh, we have universal support and believe that if we can get a vote on the floor, that it would pass. How effective do you think the sit-in was? Because obviously this is politics, but folks on the other right. side were saying, well, it was a publicity stunt. It wasn't really a push for legislation. How would you respond to that? Well, there is a, a push for legislation. Um, and if they, uh, <laughs> if they wanted to oblige, we would gladly uh, you know, take a vote on the floor. But uh, clearly this is being blocked by Paul Ryan. Um, and we had to do something. Uh, you know, we had the largest mass shooting uh, in the country, in the history of this country, 49 Men and women died. Young men and women died. Uh, and all that, that was going to be offered was another moment uh, of prayer. Uh, so we had to do something to bring attention to the fact that you know, it is Speaker Ryan and the NRA that are obstructing uh, state legislation from going through. And there was no other method that, was give, that we were given an opportunity to do it. And we just cannot live with ourselves as, as members of Congress. If there was another mass shooting, and unfortunately there will be as things go in this country, and again, our only response is going to be a moment of silence. Now, earlier today you were involved in a forum on the Voting Rights Act. Um, I want to talk a little about that. It's a three-year anniversary sure. of a Supreme Court case. What are your concerns, and did you get a chance to hear from panelists and the public as well today? We did. I just actually, the, it, the, the panel still going on right now. That's how interested people are. Um, you know, there's a lot of concern that uh, what we saw um, this last prim presidential primary election, where there were so many people that were disenfranchised, long lines, things of that nature, are a direct response to the fact uh, that the Voting Rights Act was overturned by the Shelby case. Uh, we need to have preclearance. 
uh, bring it back uh, under a new formula, obviously, uh, that would, I think, you know, be more flexible and at the same time modern. Uh, so that way we can stop these acts of voter suppression, which many times they're not designed to be, uh, you know, suppressed voters, but it ends up doing that, uh, and that's exactly what happened with our, our presidential primary. And there's a lot of great ideas that were spoken today. You know, what about same-day voter registration, all-mail-in ballots, extending early voting sites, location, hours, things of those nature that we think uh, could be very powerful in terms of getting more people to vote. Uh, and and have more people actually trust the vote, which is more dangerous, I think, to democracy. It's not just the fact that some people don't vote. It's the fact they don't believe that the democracy actually uh, matters anymore. Now, does that issue in the same sense of what we're saying about uh, about gun legislation, does this end up being too partisan an issue, and does it end up sort of limiting progress potentially? You know, I would hope that the basic right for people to vote uh, freely uh, and without without, uh, any type of burden uh, is not a partisan issue. Let's remember the Voting Rights Act for many, many, many years, and I mean almost you know, four decades, mm-hmm. was a bipartisan vote. Used to get unanimous support from, most, from both Democrats and Republicans. And right now, there are some bills on the floor that are uh, currently sponsored by both Democrats and Republicans that if it got brought down to the floor, we believe would pass with bipartisan support. Uh, so it doesn't have to be partisan, and, and voting does not do, have to be partisan either. Let's not forget that there were a lot of Trump supporters uh, that felt they were disenfranchised also uh, by this election, this last presidential primary election here in Arizona, because they were also either left off the rolls, told that they had re-registered, or uh, were were told that uh, you know they weren't even uh, uh, weren't even eligible to vote uh, for whatever reason. Congressman, let's talk briefly, briefly about um, voting voting turnout, and especially in the Latino community. I wonder about mm-hmm. how, what do you think turnout will be? There's also been a push for quite a while to get more Latino voters registered, and then mm-hmm. the, the next step is to, to actually get more of them to vote. Um, do you think someone like a Donald Trump, you think, of course, with Sheriff Joe Arpaio running again, do you think those things will bring it about sort of a vote against, or can you get some in the Latino community more exciting about voting for? I think it's going to be a combination. You you will have people that are going to come out and vote against George Orpio and Donald Trump, and there's going to be a lot of Latinos going to come out and vote for Hillary Clinton, especially Latinos, because they want to see the first woman uh, ever to become uh, president. And then there's just a lot of Latinos that uh, you know trust uh, uh, Hillary Clinton and, and recognize her as being one of the most qualified you know presidents uh, or presidential candidates in the history uh, modern history of the United States. So I think that's going to be enough. You know the there's always been an effort to increase Latino turnout, and Latino turnout has been increasing. Um, there's some some numbers say that we're going to be 20% of the electorate this time around. And uh, one of the things that we we have to caution people is that Latino turnout itself does not change the state. We are a portion of of, of a bigger uh, you know electorate, and the other portion of that electorate has to also come out and vote. If you consider yourself a Democrat, obviously, uh, or if you're a Republican and you want to get the Latino vote, then you also have to work also with that. But Latinos uh, coming out to 20 percent of the vote need to make sure that they're you know, partnering up and, and joining a coalition with working class, uh, you know, Anglo voters, uh, white women, uh, any other type of people that actually care about the proper investments in, in our state. So, you know, education. Um, you know, civil rights, uh, uh, you know, using our tax dollars correctly for, for infrastructure. If, if we team up with those type of voters, the people that, that, that care about those types of things, then yes, Arizona turns blue. If we, if we can't form that coalition, that voting coalition, then it becomes uh, harder and harder. 
But at least if you just look at the participation of Latinos, it has been increasing, uh, you know, almost every two years by one to two points. And I think this year will be a very high watermark for us. As you indicated, you're a strong supporter of Secretary Clinton. How actively involved are you going to be in the presidential campaign? Well, I've been very actively involved already. I've traveled to several states uh, to campaign for her, uh, a surrogate for her, whether it's you know on radio, TV, uh, whatever, whatever it is. I'm uh, leading uh, the Arizona delegation to the Democratic National Convention, uh, and we're going to continue pushing here uh, for, for her. We uh, had a small uh, but very strong leadership, uh, Latino leadership meeting with uh, President Clinton uh, just two days ago. Uh, and he was here, uh, you know, doing some some uh, campaigning for um, for uh, Secretary Clinton, and we're just going to continue doing that. And I think, you know, for Arizona, it's particularly important because the investments that we need uh, are going to come through Secretary Clinton, and also stability that we need is more important. And I think, you know, it's a very dangerous world with when somebody like, you know, Donald Trump could potentially be president. Congressman, finally, you've been uh, outspoken about uh, legalization of marijuana, and I wanted to uh, to get your take on that, especially that voters in Arizona are going to have a chance uh, to vote on that. Are, are there certain restrictions you'd look for? Um, and the, well, of course, yeah. yeah. I, I, you, you still need uh, restrictions. Like it, it should be regulated. But let, let's start with the premise of this. You know, the, we, we've been, uh, you know, in, on the war of drugs now, uh, the war against drugs, I should say, for, for more than 50 years. And this, if this was an actual war, this would be the biggest uh, failure in, uh, in the history of, of, of American wars. Um, we need to uh, approach our drug wars uh, in a smart manner, uh, smarter manner. And when it comes to marijuana, when marijuana is regulated, uh, like uh, other types of, of recreational uh, uh, drugs or, or other recreational uh, past times because you're smoking or drinking, uh, and done within moderation, uh, it can uh, be effective. And the most effective thing is, one, it takes marijuana out of the black market uh, for our our narco cartels. Uh, Two, it also, uh, you know, I believe is important that uh, for a drug that is consistently being used by many adults, um, it also is more judicious, uh, more, more judiciously applied when it comes to um, uh, our justice system. There are men and women that lives are being ruined uh, because they are uh, caught with a small amount of marijuana. And, you know, the determination of whether or not your life is ruined has nothing to do with the application of the law. It has to do with how good your lawyer is. Uh, and that's ridiculous. We should not be incarcerating men and women for small amounts of, of uh, marijuana, paying good taxpayer dollars on average eighteen dollars to $19,000 to imprison somebody uh, when we should probably just give them a fine uh, and, you know, tell them, uh, put them in some kind of probation. Mm-hmm. Now, legalization would is actually skip all that. You would say if you're above the age of 21 uh, and you are buying a certain amount for recreational uh, purposes and you're not operating a vehicle and, and all, all other types of same legislation, then in the price of your home, you should be able to do this. Uh, for those under 21, obviously, this would still be illegal. But it is now easier for young men and women to actually buy marijuana than it is to buy alcohol for those under the age of 21 because it is such an unregulated black market. Uh, And we've seen some positive results out of Washington and Colorado uh, where things have gone well when it comes to legalization. Congressman Ruben Gallego represents Arizona's 7th District. Congressman, thank you for the time. Thank you.
This is KJZZ's Here and Now. In Phoenix, I'm Steve Goldstein. For a number of years, there have been efforts to pass comprehensive immigration reform at the federal level, but nothing has advanced. That's one of the reasons that some states, including Arizona, pursued their own legislation, like SB 1070, to enforce immigration law. But that has led to a confusing patchwork and has affected local law enforcement. The new book, Policing Immigrants, Local Law Enforcement on the Front Lines, explores that. One of its authors is ASU criminology professor Scott Decker, who joins me. Scott, what was a major step in this inconsistency and in some cases conflict when it comes to local law enforcement and illegal immigration? A number of pieces of legislation um, about the time of 9-11 devolved some federal authorities to local authorities and made them a partner. What happened, though, was that there was so much discretion left to local law enforcement that there was not, to say the least, a uniform implementation of local adoption of federal immigration authority. So when you mention 9-11, then how much of that is connected to the perception that people seem to get about immigrants, especially when there's an economic downturn, there was the Great Recession not that long ago? Did that cause local law enforcement to want to get more aggressive? By and large, local law enforcement has not embraced the devolution of this authority. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the chief's um, sheriffs whom we interviewed for the book said, if you're doing the federal government's job, who's doing your job? And that's a refrain that many in law enforcement repeated to us uh, in, in their resistance to adopt federal responsibilities. But it seems, at least maybe just because we've seen so much of it in Maricopa County, and even with SB 1070 at the state level, it seems like this there has been a mantra of sorts saying that the federal government's not doing its job, so that's forcing us to step up. Even if SB 1070 to many people was considered extreme in that step, does that is there a logical follow-up there, this idea that someone has to be doing this? Well, you, you have to remember that uh, the chief in Phoenix, Jack Harris, lost his job uh, in large part uh, because of his resistance to things like 1070. Uh, When George Gascon was chief in Mesa, Mm -hmm. you had Mesa located right, you know, in the heart of the county at odds with the sheriff for Maricopa County, even to the point where there were some uh, event conflicts that took place. Um, So the mandate to do local law enforcement of federal immigration law wasn't shared by the majority of chiefs. We surveyed 250 large city chiefs, about half that number is small, Mm -hmm. and about 100 or so sheriffs. Sheriffs much more uh, anxious to adopt federal immigration uh, authority enforcement, in part because sheriffs do two things that are very different from other police chiefs. One is they run a jail, And when you run a jail, one of the things you have to do is establish pedigree for everybody who comes in. And so that means background checks, record checks. But the other thing sheriffs do that police chiefs don't is run for office. And in many jurisdictions, it makes a sheriff candidate much more popular and much more electable uh, to be tough on immigration. You and your colleagues focus on not that many cities in the book. One of them is Mesa. Why was Mesa chosen and how would you pick the other cities as well? We were looking for cities that represented an example of how the patchwork played out. Mesa was chosen because it was an example of a local chief fighting against 
state mandates and the county sheriff. Mm-hmm. And that dynamic was interesting to us. We picked New Haven because it was as close to a sanctuary city as there was. We wanted one of one of those. Um, other places, Allentown, Pennsylvania, uh, a new immigrant destination, places like Mesa. We've had immigrants here for as long as there's been a Mesa. Um, Allentown, the flood of immigrants it has was relatively new. Um, we did Dodge City, Kansas, because it represented a city in a very heavy enforcement state mm-hmm. in which everyone acknowledged that they weren't going to enforce an immigration law because it was closed down the major industry. Um, in Raleigh, we looked at the sheriff um, because the city police department of Raleigh, North Carolina, didn't participate in 287G, this cooperative arrangement with federal law enforcement, uh, but the sheriff did. So it allowed the local police a little cover to say, oh, no, no, we don't enforce those laws when they knew that the sheriff would. And then finally, um, El Paso, a border city uh, that up until 15 or 20 years ago, you couldn't tell where the border between the U.S. and Mexico, between El Paso and Ciudad de Juarez, began or ended. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix talking with Scott Decker, co-author of the book Policing Immigrants, Local Law Enforcement on the Front Lines. Scott, one thing when you mention Mesa being a place that has had immigrants forever and some of these other cities that haven't had to deal with it in quite the same way, um, how has that patchwork caused complications when it comes to that? When you have a place like Mesa, maybe there is more inherent knowledge uh, of how to deal with these situations. Has that caused certain issues in some of these departments you looked at? We went to a couple law enforcement conferences. We were invited to speak. There was an impassioned moment at the end of a morning session in front of several hundred police chiefs where a chief came up and hands trembling took the microphone and announced that their biggest immigration problem in his city was Puerto Ricans and that the government needed to do something to stop the flood of immigrants from Puerto Rico into the United States. And there was a twittering on the floor of the conference, and someone rose and took another microphone and said, Puerto Rico is part of the United States. So here's a police chief, fairly large city, who had no understanding that Puerto Rico wasn't one of these foreign countries sending immigrants to the U.S. It was indeed a part of the United States. Almost half of the police departments that we surveyed had no policy about how their officers were to deal with federal immigration law. Scott, where do we go from here as the U.S. population, Arizona more specifically, is going to move toward majority-minority? Are we going to see some sort of backlash, or are we going to see this idea of, in essence, coming to grips with the reality of what the population is and trying to, again, reemphasize community policing and making sure that officers and people in their neighborhoods have a connection. We can look to California as one of the early majority minority states. And what happened in, has happened in California is high levels of voter registration among Hispanics, much higher than in surrounding states, particularly Arizona. So I, I don't think there'll be much change in places like Arizona until Hispanics register and become uh, politically active and vote their their interests. Um, But we are seeing in a number of communities across the state a move to 
have the patchwork look different in their state, which is to say avoid racial profiling, uh, to enforce the law equally, to have local policies. And, and I think, you know, one of the real areas where uh, we can look for efforts to produce change is in racial profiling and traffic stops mm. and searches incident to stops. Uh, I don't know of a study in the country, and I know of 40 or 50, that show that shows um, Hispanics are searched less when stopped. Uh, Hispanics are the group most frequently searched uh, when stopped in a traffic stop. And every study also shows they're the group least likely to have contraband, drugs, guns, money in large amounts. So we're wasting a lot of police efforts making stops and searches of Hispanics that aren't producing anything. Now, the interesting thing about the change in the devolution of immigration enforcement from the federal government to local governments is it occurs at a time when crime in the United States is at historically low levels. So if this was done ostensibly because crime was out of control, particularly among new immigrant groups, it was certainly misguided at best. ASU criminology professor Scott Decker, he's the co-author of Policing Immigrants, Local Law Enforcement on the Front Lines. Scott, thanks for coming in. Happy to be here. Still to come on here and now, why are coyotes such survivors and why are we seeing them more in our neighborhoods? Plus, financial problems at Arizona Theater Company. Stay with us. KJZZ thanks business member Nitro Brew for their support of Weekend Edition, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and Radiolab. To learn more about the KJZZ business member program, visit businessmember.kjzz.org. Good morning. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. You can find us at 91.5 FM online at kjzz.org and on our mobile app. In Valley traffic right now, out in Mesa, a crash on the State Route 87, that's Country Club Drive, northbound at Baseline Road. Partly sunny today for the Valley with a 10% chance of showers and thunderstorms, a high near 110 degrees, a 20% chance of rain tomorrow, the high dropping to 105. Here and now from Boston is coming up at 12 after the terror attack on the Istanbul airport. Some are questioning whether security perimeters should be expanded. Also, with many people in Britain asking for a revote on leaving the European Union, a reporter for the Financial Times will tell us why he thinks Brexit will never happen. That's on KJZZ starting at noon. It's partly sunny and 99 degrees right now in Phoenix at 1143. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Coyotes are all around us in the valley. Not too long ago, I saw a couple of them walking deliberately across busy Shea Boulevard. You may have spotted them in your backyard or on the golf course. Coyotes have expanded their territory over the years. They've now been found in 49 states. Hawaii is the only exception. In his new book, Coyote America, A Natural and Supernatural History, author Dan Flores writes about how coyotes have adapted and survived. He'll be in Tempe at Changing Hands Bookstore next Tuesday, and he joins me. Dan, are we seeing more coyotes because humans have moved into more of their territory, or is there a natural evolution of sorts? I mean, some people are alarmed when they see a coyote walking down the street, maybe holding a cat or a small dog in its mouth. Coyotes um, are obviously canids, and uh, particularly towards cats, uh, they have a, a kind of an inherent animosity. The stories, the urban stories about uh, coyotes preying on pets are uh, 
pretty far-fetched, actually. I mean, there's a an urban ecologist in Chicago who argues that if uh, coyotes were actually living off pets, we wouldn't have any pets in very short order. Uh, they're such efficient predators that they would take them out. But what they're actually doing is uh, they establish territories in urban areas just as they do out in the countryside, and they see cats and dogs as competitor predators uh, in their territories. And so oftentimes they'll attack them or become aggressive towards uh, towards our pets, not because they want to eat them, but because they think that they're invading competitors. Do coyotes generate emotional reaction on, on both sides? Are there, are there clear sides when it comes to coyotes and, and whether they should be hunted or whether we should try to be protective of them or the fact that they're just part of society? I mean, to what extent are there modern battles about coyotes going on? Well, there are definitely modern battles. I mean, this is an interesting thing to, to say about them because humans have been existing side by side with coyotes for at least 15,000 years. I mean, these are animals that only were in North America, and so when native people arrived here 15,000 years ago, they obviously were living side by side with them and did so, uh, coexisted with them quite easily for thousands of years. Europeans, though, and when uh, the ancestors of Europeans and Asians and Africans began coming to North America, they came from areas that didn't have coyotes, and so this was a new animal, and it took people quite a while, really, till the end of the 19th century to kind of know what we thought about them. But uh, when we did come to some conclusions about them, uh, those conclusions weren't, uh, weren't positive for coyotes. And so uh, what kind of emerged for a lot of history was a, uh, a unified decision that these were animals like gray wolves that we should try to rid uh, the country completely of. And in the case of coyotes, I mean, we spent decades trying to exterminate them. Uh, but since the 1960s, really, I think there's been, you know, another, uh, since the age of ecology, another group that's emerged in America, a very large and perhaps uh, majority opinion today, which holds that coyotes are they're a natural part of uh, the ecosystems in North America. Uh, it's really uh, a benefit and uh, kind of a wonderful thing to get to live in the proximity of a small wolf. But, of course, there are still plenty of people with a traditional attitude about them. So that sets them up really as kind of a, uh, a political football in a way. I mean, they almost fall into the same category as, as climate change and uh, Obamacare and a whole host of other uh, political uh, footballs about which America has opposing opinions. Dan, it's funny to to think about the the coyote. Let's say you describe uh, going down. I think it was to your your folks' mailbox um, in Louisiana, and uh, and seeing seeing a couple just sort of lope by. And I've had times where you know in a very urban area, you're driving by and there's a coyote just walking by. Um, is there any reason for humans to be uh, scared of coyotes? And is there any reason for the average coyote who runs into the average human to be scared of, of us? Is it just sort of a relationship of coexistence? Well, I think it's becoming a relationship of coexistence. It's, I think what's happening is that um, humans and coyotes are beginning to live alongside one another the way they had for many thousands of years before this, 
this uh, period of persecution of them. And so coyotes are really good at this. I mean, they've been they've been living alongside us for thousands of years. We know they were urban animals, for example, in the Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan a thousand years ago. They were in places like Chaco Canyon when that was a a great uh, citadel of civilization a thousand years ago in North America. So they're good at it. They know how to do it. Uh, We're the ones who really have to accommodate ourselves to having this small wolf in our midst because we've sort of come out of a historical background where we think that when we started moving into cities, that meant that we didn't have to engage with predators any longer. But the coyote is a predator that is perfectly at home uh, in, in urban areas and living uh, basically in our backyards. So we're the ones, I think, who are going to have to uh, come to terms with that happening. And it, it's become something of a, a modern phenomenon because it's happening now in places that never had coyotes before, like Manhattan and like Washington, D.C. and Boston. And so uh, people who've never never considered the idea of, of having coyotes uh, around them are now having to do that. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Talking with Dan Flores, he's the author of Coyote America, A Natural and Supernatural History. He'll be at Changing Hands Bookstore in Tempe next Tuesday, July the 5th. How much do coyotes have in common with us, with, with humans, as far as how they go about their lives? Now, that's a good question. That's one of the primary themes of my book, in fact, because I, I think that one of the reasons they fascinate us so is that we inherently recognize how similar they are to us. And in the course of Coyote America, I describe uh, four or five evolutionary adaptations that we and coyotes uh, among very few other animals around the world, share. And one of them is this ability that both humans and coyotes have to function as groups in order to accomplish larger goals, but also to exist, especially when you're, when you're pressured, to exist as, as just singles or pairs. I mean, and we've done that in our history on several occasions when things like disease epidemics have threatened us. I mean, we've tended to scatter into the countryside uh, in order to escape disease epidemics, and coyotes will do the same thing when they're pressured. They will abandon their fusion tendencies, and they will instead engage in, engage in what's called fission, and they'll scatter as singles and pairs. So that's one uh, of the uh, probably the most uh, noteworthy uh, environmental and evolutionary adaptations that the two of us have, but I would say probably the one that most people would recognize, and it's unusual uh, in the natural world, is that we two species, humans and coyotes, are both phenomenally successful, and not many other species can actually uh, be as successful as coyotes can be in our presence, and so that's one of the things I think that's always attracted us to them. It's probably why Native people, for example, made the coyote into a deity figure in the American West 10,000 years ago, is that they understood that coyotes lived by their intelligence just the way humans did, and they also were survivors like humans. The name of the book is Coyote America, A Natural and Supernatural History. I've been talking with the author Dan Flores. He'll be in the Valley next Tuesday at Changing Hands Bookstore in Tempe. Dan, thank you. Steve, I appreciate you having me on. Thank you.
You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Many nonprofit arts companies across the country, and especially in Arizona, have run into serious financial problems since the Great Recession. Some have had struggles getting audiences back, while others have seen corporate support dry up. Arizona Theater Company, which produces its plays in downtown Phoenix and in Tucson, finds itself facing serious and dramatic changes without a major influx of money in the next few days. Longtime artistic director David Ira Goldstein, no relation, is with me now to update the situation. David, thanks for coming in. It's always great to be with you, Steve. How much money is needed at this point? Well, we, we announced uh, last Monday that we needed $2 million in cash. It's a, it's a cash flow problem in order to confidently start our season, which we start to build the uh, second week of July. And uh, so it's, it's a serious situation. I don't think since 1988 have we gone to the public and said, you really need to step up or, or Arizona Theater Company really could, could not be here, which would be such a shame. We just finished our 49th season. We finished that season and the season before in the black, but we carried debt back, going back to the recession that we just have not been able to eliminate. And so the cash flow problems continue. As I said, you're down to just a few days. So why is the public just hearing about this now? Well, they're not. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's it's it, it, it's sometimes that thing that you know you some, you really have to say, hey, folks, listen, we've been working. Our whole staff, our board, has been working for the last eight months tirelessly trying to raise money, and we have raised a million and a half in that time. Many many initiatives. We sent out tens of thousands of letters. We did curtain speeches. We, we made thousands of calls and had hundreds of meetings, but we just found that the, some of those efforts did not pay off, and here we are, and we don't want to be irresponsible and, uh, and add to that debt. So people, people need to, to step up, and we've had some strong indications that they will. I will say especially from Tucson, uh, it's, uh, it, it's interesting that we get more individual support from Tucson, which is, of course, a third the size uh, of this area than we, than we do up here. And as a Phoenician, that hurts me deeply. But it, it really is important for, for the community to step up. Otherwise, there is no fully professional, regional, uh, what we call LORT, League of Resident Theaters, in the entire state, in the entire region. We have subscribers in every county in the state. We reach over 30,000 kids a year. So I don't want to go on and on, but it, but it's important, and there's a lot of people that are trying to keep this working. Let's crunch the numbers a little bit. When you mentioned that the last couple of seasons have been in the black, how does it work that the, the money that hits you, in part because of the Great Recession, in part because of other things, why is that coming to fruition now in the sense that this is it or perhaps we're going to have to cancel our season? Well, you know, we've been consistently raising about three to three and a half million a year. And we've had some really major donors, as, as you know, you've probably announced some of those efforts, who have stepped up the last several years with $1 million-plus gifts. And we can't rely on them forever. They're still going to be there for us. They're not walking away, but we can't rely on those kinds of gifts all the time. And so this year we found ourselves, even with the same efforts and redoubled efforts, with this gap. And, and we simply can't have them start building the sets and costumes for our first show, which happens the second week in July, unless we can assure our professional staff that we can, we can pay them. I'm sure I've asked you this question before, and as an, a longtime artistic director who works with theater companies across the country, and I'm sure around the world as well, does any of this come down to how a season is built? 
Um, you know, we do about 70% of our income as earned income, ticket revenue and a few little ancillary things like concessions. The typical theater of our size nationally does 59% earned income. So we're having to raise about 30 to 35% of our budget every year, whereas other theater companies and other museums and ballet companies and symphonies can be 50%. So I don't feel that we've, we've um, been negligent in that way. People ask me, if you're so good, why don't you just make money? And we probably could if all we did were those six main stage shows and asked for full price tickets. We have an average ticket price of about $40. Uh, having been in New York recently, you're not going to see a Broadway show for $40, as you know. Um, and we also serve 30,000 kids. And those education programs, those outreach programs, those community programs that go everywhere from Tuba City to Nogales, mm-hmm those aren't going to pay for themselves. They're going to need support like any other nonprofit. And arts education is so endangered in our schools that to lose these programs that serve 30,000 kids at a very low cost would be tragic. So how much did this announcement sort of sound the bell to get community leaders involved, that they're going to go oh, try to twist some arms? And that sort we've of had thing? some great... I, I do want to say both mayors, Mayor Rothschild down in Tucson and Mayor Stanton, have been tremendous, have offered to make fundraising calls for us, have, they are, you know, we are, we're key, we're right downtown in the middle of the renaissance of downtown Phoenix and downtown Tucson, and it's important to them. Mayor Stanton used to be on our board before he, uh, before he was mayor. Uh, so they, they've been great. I had a terrific meeting with Mayor Rothschild down in Tucson yesterday, brainstorming some ideas we can do going forward. We also know that if we go forward, we need to do further reorganizing. It can't just be budget cutting. We've cut our budget by $2 million over the last three years since, mm-hmm. since these problems hit. Uh, but we do need to look at everything. We've also been working very closely with ASU to see if there's a way to connect much more directly with ASU in terms of uh, Arizona Theater Company and their department of, of theater and uh, film and dance. And so we're, we're hoping to continue those efforts. Okay, now you almost <laughs> retired a few years ago. <laughs> or resigned, Resi- any was okay. moving on. <laughs> right, resigned from that particular position and almost moved on somewhere else. So considering you're in for a, another fight right now, um, I mean, obviously, you've been committed to this company for a long time. 25 years. But how do you feel about this? Do you feel like with all the work having been done, this feels like uh, a punch in the gut? Uh, does it feel like you're glad you stayed so you can try to help make the changes? Well, I, go, I, I sort of seesaw back and forth from a punch in the gut to, wasn't I supposed to leave three years ago? <laughs> I, I guess I, I alternately feel those things. But I care so deeply for these communities where, where, I, where I live. I care so deeply for an incredible professional staff who are all Arizonans that, that create our productions. And I feel so deeply about the work we do that, you know, I'm certainly not going to walk away, but I still do plan to, I think, I think new blood and fresh blood and young ideas and young dreams should, should, be, should be coming forward. So I, I, won't, uh, I won't regret uh, having to leave sometime in the near future. David, briefly, maybe just 15 or 20 seconds here. If, in fact, this dire thing happens and a season is canceled, what does that mean for the future of the company? Do companies just bounce back from that kind of thing? Um, questionable. I mean, we, we, we would look at, I mean, our board will look at every option, whether taking in a hiatus and seeing what we can do, uh, changing our business model, uh, suspending for a year and coming back, or just going out of business and selling our assets. I mean, they're all on the table. 
And uh, we'll have to decide that when we see how these fundraising efforts go. David Ivory Goldstein, longtime artistic director of Arizona Theatre Company. David, thanks for coming in. Thanks, Steve. And that's all for today's edition of KJZZ's Here and Now. Thanks to senior producer Sarah Ventry and Bruce Drummond for their assistance on the program. And thank you very much for listening. This is member-supported KJZZ FM Phoenix and HD. I'm Steve Goldstein. Have a great rest of the day. It's 12 o'clock.